us. We are going to begin a new series today that's going to run us all the way up until Easter. And that series is called Life on Purpose, Discerning God's Direction for Your Life. And as the title of the the series indicates, this is a message series about our purpose, what we are put on earth to do. And we're not going to just talk kind of generally speaking, although today and next week are going to be a little bit more laying a groundwork and general stuff before we really get focused in on what God has specifically put you on this planet to do, what your contribution is. But the heart of it is to go, God, what have you called us to do? Because what we do matters. Um, that's evident from kind of just a social standpoint. When you meet somebody and once you get past the initial, hey, what's your name? Oh, here's my, my name's Eric. What's the very next question we ask? Typically, it's what do you do or some rendition of that? Because we recognize at our core, what we do is a part of our humanness. It's a part of, of just living out and, and making a mark on this planet. There's something innately in us that says, I want my life to matter. And it does matter. But uh, what you often hear within the church goes something like, hey, it's not what you do that matters, but who you are. Has anybody ever heard that? I know for a fact that I have preached that. So if you haven't heard that, it's because you're spending too much time on your phone in the middle of the service. Okay? So we often will kind of hammer that it's not what you do, but who you are that really matters. And in, in, in a lot of ways, that is absolutely true. We don't want to try to earn our identity through what we do as if we're hamsters on a wheel that have to prove our value. Our identity and our value do not flow from what we do. They flow from who we are as sons and daughters of God. That is the core message of so much of the Bible, including the book of Ephesians that we just spent, you know, a couple of months working through back in fall. And if you struggle with your identity as a son or a daughter of God, if you try to find your identity through what you do, I would encourage you to go back to that series. It's on our website. You can listen to any message we've done for the last decade or so. They're all up there. But specifically, go back to the beginning of the Ephesians series and listen to the first two messages because they are foundational to everything we're going to talk about moving forward. So you are not what you do. And yet, what we do matters. It's a core part of who we are and it flows out of who we are. We were created to do something. And the reality is so much of our life is taken up in our work and in what we do. And I should stop here before we go any further and clarify something. Whenever I use the word work today or moving forward through this whole series, I am not just talking about your job. Okay, so for those of you who are retired at this point, I'm talking about more than just the career that you retired from. For those of you who are in school, I'm talking about more than the career that you will one day identify and do. I'm talking about the whole slew of what you give your life to. It, it, it looks anything that you do, whether it be tending your home. You know, I, I see Byron out there caring for the garden in front so that Diane, you know, gets, gets credit for having the green thumb. We know it's Byron. He, he is the, he is the power behind that, that green thumb. We, whether it's raising children, for those of you who think that being a full-time mom or full-time dad is, is not working, that's ridiculous. We know that that is more than a full-time job, just raising one child, let alone two or three. Whether it's raising grandchildren and spoiling them rotten, that is work. And it's fun work, but it's work. 
or, or, or anything that you give your hands to, whether it's a hobby that you pursue, whether it's writing blogs, uh, creating artwork, any sort of an expression, all of those things are encompassed under this term work. And so let's use this as our working definition. Let's go ahead and throw that up on the board. This is our working definition for work moving forward. Whatever we invest our time or energy into, that is work, okay? So can we just make that the kind of ground level? When we're talking about work, we're not just talking about your job. But what we do is, is important because by definition, by this definition, the lion's share of our week is spent in work. And yet within the church, we tend to talk about a, a minuscule amount of our lives, that hour and a half on Sunday mornings or, or the, the quiet times that we do throughout the week. We tend to focus more on the spiritual stuff when in reality, Jesus didn't want to just be the Lord over a couple of hours a week. He wants to be Lord of our lives 24-7. And when he says, follow me, be my disciple, he's not just saying, follow me on Sunday mornings between 10 and 1130. And, you know, whenever you, you remember to, to pray or spend some quiet time with me, he's saying, follow me every moment of every day. And so what does it look like to be disciples and to follow him at church and at school and at work and when we're at home taking care of the house, when we're doing laundry, when you're washing the car, when you're, when you're going to the gym, when you're at your coffee shop getting your, getting your, your kind of fill up. So you can get through the rest of the day. When you're taking the kids to sports or when you're playing sports, what does it look like to follow Jesus every moment in everything? Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to be talking about. We are going to be talking about the whole of our life. So let's begin this morning. All of that being intro, let's begin this morning with a bit of a softball question. Ready? This is going to be an easy one. Not a, not a question about softball, um, but a, 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 an easy low-hanging fruit kind of question. Here we go. What are you on this planet for? What is the meaning of life? Easy, right? No, I didn't actually. That, that wasn't rhetorical. I mean, I was, I was just, it was rhetorical, okay? What, what are we on the planet for? That's what we're wrestling with. That's what we're grappling with. And every single philosophical or religious uh, you know, belief has an answer that from Islam to Hinduism to Buddhism. Buddhism would say the purpose of life is to reach nirvana, to, to disconnect from the, to, to kind of unhinge your life from the hooks that it has into you so that you can just be comfortable with you and reach nothingness. Even atheism has an answer to this question of what's the meaning of life. Atheism would say there is no meaning of life. It's an accident. Therefore, we should eat, drink, and be merry because we're only on this planet for a short period of time, so get the most out of it. Now, within the church, we typically have a much more religious-sounding answer, something like the Westminster Catechism. Can we throw that up there? This is one you've probably heard before. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Sounds good. Sure, let's go with that. I mean, who's going to argue with that? I mean, you have to understand what that means first before you can argue with it. But the point is that Scripture, and I'm not suggesting that this is not true, that we are here to glorify God and to enjoy relationship with Him forever, but Scripture gives us a much more down-to-earth answer in the book of Genesis, literally more down-to-earth. If you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. 
We are going to be spending the next several weeks in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, because as I have found, so much of of the human existence, so much of what we understand about the world is is found in the first two chapters of Genesis. So if we want to understand the human predicament, we will find ourselves going back here again and again and again, because this is the foundation upon which our uh, spiritual worldview is built. And we read in the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first, first book of the Bible, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we talk about heavens and the earth, that is just a kind of a a short form of saying everything. From top to bottom, he made everything. And when we read the word created, this is the one time in scripture where this term is used that is, it's something out of nothing, that God spoke the world and all of the materials ex nihilo, out of nothing into existence. And then over the next six days, He begins to take those raw materials and craft things out of them to begin to bring order to the chaos. Because we read in verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. I love the word in Hebrew. It's tohu wabohu. Say that with me. Tohu wabohu. That's formless and void. It was basically just a whole, it's almost like you took a big old bucket of Legos and just dumped it onto the ground. And that was God creating everything. But it was tohu wabohu. It was without order. And over the next six days, he begins to sift through and separate and create things out of it. You know, I want sky up here and I want to have the the, the waters down below. And then I'm going to create shore so I separate the waters from the land. I'm going to put some birds in the sky and I'm going to put fish in the sea and I'm going to put animals to wander along the ground. And, and, and time after time, he then steps back and just appreciates his creation and then, and then goes in and adds a little bit more detail. And it's honestly like reading a transcript of one of those old Bob Ross uh, painting shows that you used to watch. Like the, I just picture God with an afro and, 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 and a white one, of course. And, and his, his palette of colors which are made of his words, and he just begins to go, oh, yeah, okay, well, let's add a couple of birds up here, and let's add a, sh- a little shrub over, oh, that's nice, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of the picture I get of God creating and enjoying his creation, and then we come crashing into the, the, the Genesis one twenty six, where he then comes to day six, and the culmination of this creation, and we read in, in verse 26, Then God said, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, did you catch it? Because this verse contains within it the answer to our question that we began with. What is our purpose? Why did God make us? What are we here for? We were made in God's image, in his likeness, so that we can rule over his creation. So let's drill down into that. This is where we're going to camp this morning. This is the one verse we're going to try to really unpack because it's foundational to everything else that's coming. We begin with this idea, this understanding that we were created in God's image in his likeness. And a lot of times we tend to kind of convolute those two things, think that that scripture is just kind of repeating itself. 
just two different synonyms for the same thing. But in fact, both of those words carry weight. And both of them contain important information for understanding how God made us and what we were created for. Because this is the only place in Scripture, in fact, this is the, I shouldn't say only place in Scripture, but that we, human beings, are the only people, our only creation in all of God's creation that have this kind of language used to describe us in His image and in His likeness. And oftentimes when we hear image and likeness, we tend to think that this is simply saying that we were made to be like God. Not necessarily looking like him, although we often think that, but, but more so in our abilities. Our God is creative, therefore he has made us to be creative. We can make stuff out of his creation. Or, or God is communal. He's three in one. He, was, he is relational to his core. He's created us to be relational, to be in relationship with him and with one another. And there is truth to that. And that's really encapsulated by that word uh, likeness. We're like him. But the word image is not just a synonym for likeness. It itself carries an immense amount of information that is imperative for us to get before we move forward. The, the word image or selim is a word that's often translated uh, statue or idol. And when you think of any sort of a God being worshipped in, in any sort of a, a you know, pagan chapel, they would put statues or idols there to symbolize the God that people could not see that so that worshipers would understand who they were worshiping. So they would have some picture of it. And what we read in scripture is that humanity, we were created to be the image bearers, to be the representatives of our creator. And I love the way that uh, my friend John Mark Comer uh, explains the heart of it. And this is from his book, Garden City, which in a lot of ways has influenced a ton of what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of months. Can we, this is, this is a, a quote from that book. He says, we were put on earth to make visible the invisible God, to show the world what God is like. We are the creator's representatives to his creation. So, God made you and I and Adam and Eve and all humanity to represent him, to be his image bearers to the world, which means that it carries with it a sense of dignity that all of us have value. Um, but it's interesting because Elohim, I'm sorry, the, 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 the Selim, Elohim, it, there's even more packed into this idea that we are made in the image of God. It's not just that we're image bearers, that we represent him. It's in the ancient Near East, there was only one person who was declared to be made in God's image, in the Salem Elohim. And that would have been the king. I mean, take the Egyptian Pharaoh, for instance. Pharaoh was referred to as Amun-Ra. That was a name, a title he was given, which in, in Egyptian means the image of Ra, the sun god. He was understood to be the physical representation of the god that the Egyptians worshipped. And therefore, he ruled as that god's representative. And all throughout Mesopotamia, throughout the, the ancient Near East, kings were described as the image bearers of their god, whichever god they happened to worship, whichever god they happened to represent. 
But by that definition, if the king is described as the image bearer of God, what does that mean for all the rest of the people? It implies that they are not. That they are nothing but slave labor there to do the bidding of the king, who is the representative of the God. In light of that, when we read in Genesis 1.26 that we all were created in the image of God, this is, this is radical because it's saying that all of us, all of us have value. All of us have a, a dignity and an identity that is far greater than simply being slave labor. And there is a value to it that then permeates all the way into how God views our lives. Just a few chapters later, in Genesis uh, chapter 9, we read this. God says this to Noah and to his family. In Genesis 9, 5 through 6, he says, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God... Has God made man? The reason that human life is valuable, the reason why God takes murder so stinking seriously is because we're image bearers. And so our very lives have meaning. So that is an imperative thing that we understand from the outset, that our being image bearers gives us an automatic sense of dignity that is radical in the ancient Near East in that time where only a few select people were considered to be image bearers. Genesis is saying all of us are. All of us have that dignity. All of us have that value. And because that's who we are, we are image bearers made in his likeness. We now have a purpose. And that purpose is to rule. Again, this is king and queen language. The word rule, radah, uh, is, is often kind of translated to reign or to have dominion over something. Again, king or queen language. And it is used for every single image bearer, meaning you and I, every single one of us that is formed in God's image is called to rule over God's creation. Not just the person sitting on the highest throne in the land. So our being image bearers is inextricably linked with our call or our purpose to rule. And I love the way that one uh, theologian translated to rule. He says, to rule means to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. To actively partner with God in moving the world forward. Because remember this, when God spoke the world into existence... Everything out of nothing, one big bang of creativity. He then spends the next six days bringing order to what was Tohu Wabohu. He begins to organize and, 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 and bring order to things. And then on the sixth day, he looks to humanity and says, Now I'm going to create you in my image, in my likeness, so that you can join me as partners in this process, so that you too can begin to bring order to what is otherwise kind of chaotic and what we see, the the law of entropy beginning to break in here. If you don't weed the garden, what's going to happen? The weeds and the brambles are going to take over and it's going to very quickly become uninhabitable. But if you join me in this process, you will make it more fruitful and you will make it a place where it is is wonderful and life-giving to live. 
Now, I, I also want to mention that the Genesis narrative, the Genesis explanation of creation was not uh, the only creation narrative that emerged from the ancient Near East, out of that Mesopotamian area. Pretty much every culture had an explanation for how humanity came to be. And in all of them, humanity was viewed more or less as slave labor. Let me just give you one example. The Babylonians, in their Enuma Elish, which is their kind of explanation, their genesis, the Babylonians explained that creation was made by a whole pantheon of gods, but the gods very quickly tired of their labor. For them, the work of creation was wearying and frustrating, and they didn't like it. And so they begin to complain to Marduk, the, the king of the Babylonian pantheon. Oh, we don't like this. What are you going to do about it? And this is Marduk's response. Can we throw it up on the board? <clears throat> he says, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. And he shall be charged with the service of the gods so that they, meaning the gods, might be at ease. In other words, Marduk, according to the Babylonian faith system, Marduk created humanity as slave labor so that the gods would not have to get their hands dirty and so that they could be at rest. So we're the ones who have to do it. Now, considering that as a backdrop of what most of the other, you know, world religions articulated humanity being created for, consider the message of Genesis. Because Genesis describes God not as, as a God who is weary of work. Oh, this is so frustrating. This is so boring. This is so beneath me. Instead, he is this divine artist that finds joy in creation. He's, he's, as he orders things, he stands back and he appreciates the work of his hands. And then he creates humanity to join him as partners in it. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Eric. On the seventh day, Genesis 1 says, on the seventh day, God rested. You know, he was obviously tired. I'm saying, no, he wasn't tired. That simply means he ceased from his labors and enjoyed it with humanity that he just created the day before. So, and we'll get into the whole idea of rest a little later on in this series. But it is not suggesting that God was weary of his labor. He enjoyed it. And yet, for some reason, he chooses part of the way through it on day six to create humanity in his image to continue to join him in partnering with him in moving the world forward. Now, some of us will ask, well, why did he do that? Why wouldn't God just finish making the earth and creation exactly how he wanted it and then make humanity and stick us in a place that is Edenic, that, that there is no issues whatsoever so that we can just sit back and sip a Mai Tai and contemplate our navel or lack thereof? Right? Why, why wouldn't he just do that? And to answer that question, because I, I would imagine that if he had done it that way, first he would have done it a lot quicker than we do when we join him in it, and it would have been done with a far higher level of precision than we can do. So why would he choose to let imperfect image bearers represent him when he knew that it was going to go sideways in a lot of ways? Why would he do that? Well, to answer that question, let me just share a, a brief story from, that happened last week. 
these rainstorms have been knocking a lot of leaves out of the trees in our house. And I, I took our puppy, Sadie, into the backyard to go to the restroom. And um, the, the backyard looked tohu wabohu. Like they, the leaves were everywhere. It was formless and void. And I, in the midst of it, just went, well, I mean, we love coming back here. But right now it's a little disheartening because I thought I just raked this place. But I get the rake out. Entropy at work, and I began to I began to rake up the leaves, and I and I made a pretty massive pile that Sadie was running through and, and spreading around. And and the funny thing is, as I'm raking, the wind is blowing and more leaves are falling, and it's just like okay, the futility of it all, right? But I get all the leaves piled up, and then I go to to begin picking up the pile, and I stopped because I realized that I was missing an opportunity. You see, Kathy and I right now are raising two boys, 10 and 7. And, and part of raising not children, but men in process, part of raising them is helping them to learn how to take responsibility for things. And so we've started, you know, really implementing the whole, you have responsibility around the house. We're not just here to wait on you. And one of the things, one of the responsibilities that's fallen to my eldest son, Ethan, is helping me keep the backyard clean. And it's, it's actually been a real joy because far from just being a, a task, oh, do I have to? It is both, it's been both bonding for us because honestly, he has not really complained a whole lot, which is a miracle in and of itself, but it's also given him a sense of dignity. Far more so than if I just waited upon him and I did it. He has begun to appreciate the working with his hands and working alongside of his daddy. And so I realized I was missing an opportunity in picking up all the leaves by myself to do this with my son. And yet at the same time, I'm an activator who loves to finish a project so that I can just be done with it. And in that moment, as I stood there with the rake in one hand and the the lid to the uh, trash can there to scoop it up, I realized... I can either finish this project or I can put the rake down and wait till Ethan comes home from school and then I can invite him to join me in finishing the project and we can finish it together. And it didn't take me very long to realize I would much rather do it with him, even though it'll take us longer. More leaves will fall, so we'll have to rake some more. I'd much rather do it with him because at the end of the day, relationship is more important than finishing any project. Does that make sense? Because I would suggest to you the reason that God did not just finish it all and then put humanity into a finished, completed world is because he wanted to invite us to join him in this process of bringing order to his creation and moving the world forward. The Bible calls it ruling. But when you begin to understand that just doing the things that God has given us to do and moving the world forward, that begins to sound a whole heck of a lot like work. So God has invited us in our work, in the things we give our lives to, in the things that we give our time, our energy, and our talents to. All of that helps move the world forward. And God chose to invite us into it. I mean, because he could, he could have filled the earth up with humanity in the same way that he did Adam, right? Just take a little bit of dust, breathe some breath into it, instant human being. And he could have done that over and over and over again until the world was populated. But instead, God chooses to work through marriage and families and teachers and grandparents. God could have just made food fall from the heavens and, and, and you wake up in the morning and there's all the food you could possibly need for the day. Just like he did for the Israelites moving through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. But instead he chooses 
to work through farmers and cattle ranchers and people who drive the stuff cross-country to their destination and, and people who purchase it and, and managers of grocery stores and even and baggers and, and people who deliver it to people's homes. All of those things, God feeds us through one another. And God could have easily said, hey, I'm going to go ahead and finish everything and get us kind of to the destination, that, that new Jerusalem, that new world that is free of all the brokenness and stuff that comes as a, a result of sin. Uh, he could have just done it all himself and never put a tree in the middle of the garden of good, uh, you know, a tree of good and evil in the middle of the garden and not given us any sort of ability to make any choices that were outside of his desire. He could have made us to be puppets, just simply doing his bidding but he wanted relationship. He wanted to give us the ability to choose whether or not to be in relationship with him, to choose whether or not to join him in moving the world forward. He knew the consequences of that. And yet, apparently, he thought relationship and partnership were important enough to deal with all of the other brokenness uh, and the Pandora's box of messiness that comes with free will. So God chose to create humanity as his partners. Yeah, just the, the other day, and this is, this is not in my notes, but just the other day I went to this restaurant that just opened up here on 17th Street. And they're having a soft opening because they were practicing through all of their menu. And so my brother and I are sitting there and we're, we're waiting about 45 minutes to get our food because they're still working it out, right? And I looked down to the entrance and when we got there, there was just a couple of people in line. When I looked out the door, the line was extended like way up to all the way to the street and it started to wrap around the corner. And I'm thinking, oh, all of these poor people who are working here, right? They are working their tail off just to keep up with the demand here. And now they have all of these other people. Ugh. But then I started thinking about the, the one person in that place who was probably excited about that line. The owner, Right? The owner's excited, whereas all the workers who are just making minimum wage are just like, oh, seriously, I wish this line would go away. And that's the difference between simply being slave labor, who's working for a living just because you got to eat, and being an owner. And what I love about the creation narrative is that God, he owns it all, but he has entrusted it to us. And he said, I'm going to allow you to rule with me. We become partial owners of this. And now we get to help him move creation forward to complete what he has begun. Now we're going to talk about what it looks like to rule. How does that play out? What exactly is our responsibility? We'll look at that next week. The real meat of this conversation is we're only just getting to it. And we're going to, we're going to really get into it next week. But for today, I'll close with this. I just want you to remember that you have dignity. It doesn't matter what your, your job description is or if you're retired or if you, you're out of work right now or if you have not even had your first job because you're still in school. There's a dignity and value to you that is not derived by what you do, but by who you are. You're a son or daughter of God. That can't be taken from you. And you are an image bearer of the king. His indelible fingerprints are upon you. And you are his representative. When people look at your life, they 
get an idea, an impression of who our God is, for better or for worse, true or not, the way you live your life matters. The way that you interact with people when you're driving your car on the way to work, the way that you make, the way you speak on the phone to people, the way you raise your kids, the way you treat other kids that are not yours, that just bug the snot out of you because they're just not all that respectful, the way you treat hard people, the way that you spend your money, the way you spend your time, all of these things are a reflection on our Father God. And so this morning, I simply ask, what does your life say about our Father? How is the way you're spending your life reflecting upon Him? And how are you spending your life? How are you investing it? Because the work of our hands is us moving the world forward, making something, joining God in His partnership. We will get more into that next week. May we, may we simply understand that our lives matter, and it doesn't matter what your walk of life is. It doesn't matter if you own your home, if you're renting, or if you don't even have a roof over your head. And when you leave this place, you're going back to your car because that's about the safest, driest place that you have. It doesn't matter what gender you have. You were created in God's image. Just look at verse 27 for a second. He says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Both male and female represent the heart of our God. And ladies, you do it better in a lot of ways than some of us men do. You epitomize aspects of our Father God that we just don't know how to get to as well. All of us have dignity. All of us have purpose. I'm just so grateful that God uses imperfect vessels like us to reflect his perfect love. And so let's just, let's just go ahead and respond to that this morning. Father God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for using imperfect vessels to pour out your perfect love. Thank you for instilling within us, each of us, a dignity that cannot be taken based upon our job status, based upon our relationship status based upon our socioeconomic status, based upon the color of our skin. Thank you that you work through us, and I thank you, God, that you allow us to join you in moving your world forward, that you allow us to rule alongside of you. Glorify yourself in us. Help yourself to us to do what it is that you want to do. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together.